Maybe I'm curious to ask you about, yeah, in, in robotics, we have a concept of redundancy. If something damaged happening, you still can, you still could function. Would it apply to the brain specifically? If there's something damaged happening, because we have a lot of, yeah, mental health issues, maybe something trauma is happening and you can't function. Is this concept in redundancy, how the brain can still function, even if there's damages happening? There's something, if something exists in the brain, the concept of redundancy. Yes, no, uh, it, it's a it's a very important concept, uh, particularly in something called neuropsychology, which is the study of um, lesion deficits relationships. So um, usually in people who had a cerebrovascular accident, and you try to understand what part of the what that part of the brain that was damaged was doing um, by virtue of looking at their sort of cognitive or motor or or sensory deficits. So two concepts that have been extremely useful in guiding people's interpretation, again, of what can damage to a brain tell you about its functional anatomy or its functional architecture um, are degeneracy and redundancy. Uh, but there is a subtle difference. So in my world, this, I think the kind of robustness that you're asking about inherits from degeneracy, a sort of a many to one um, sort of function structure um, mapping as opposed to redundancy. So uh, just, just to um, try and clarify that sort of heuristically, um, it would be redundant for me to, in fact, I'll try and do this. I don't know if, if the videos are working. It will be redundant sure. of me to use both hands to lift a cup when one will do. But having two hands available means that there's a degenerate um, if you like, capability there. I can either use that hand or I can use that hand. The function is the same, but there are two structures at hand, literally, to do it. So it's good that I got two hands because if I damage this hand, I can still lift the cup, but it would be redundant of me to use both hands. So that, that's you know um, quite a crucial sort of concept or way of thinking about um, the the, the plurality and the, the, the many to one, the one to many structure function relationships that characterize the brain. Mathematically, it's really interesting as well. Um, mm -hmm. So you, you haven't asked me, but one of the things that I'm, I'm famous for is, is the free energy principle, which um, in this instance, I think um, provides a nice bit of formalism to think about the difference between degeneracy and redundancy. Mm -hmm. So the free energy principle is just a way of saying that the good models, the models that work, the models that survive, or the brains that survive, or the robots that survive, um, have to either minimize uh, their free energy or uh, equivalently maximize the, um, the evidence for their generative models. So if you were in machine learning, this would be known as an evidence lower bound or an elbow. Um, so it's mathematically exactly the same thing. The reason I'm pressing on this is that you can always carve log evidence or log marginal likelihood into two bits, which is the um, which is the accuracy and the complexity, or you can carve it another way in terms of the energy and the entropy. And that's quite a nice mathematical image that holds the notion, I think, of degeneracy and redundancy. So on the one hand, if you've got the accuracy complexity divide or um, uh, carving of evidence and you want to maximize evidence, you want to maximize 
accuracy while minimizing complexity and complexity would be the redundancy. Okay. So the principle of minimum redundancy is a principle of maximum um, efficiency, which is a principle of maximum information transfer. The other way of carving it, though, gets, I think, what you're interested in, which is the degeneracy part of it, that, that plurality, that robustness. So free energy is equal to uh, energy minus entropy. So if you want to minimize free energy, you want to maximize the entropy. So maximizing the entropy of our representations is, I think, precisely what gives you that robustness. And um, one sees that um, in a somewhat technical sense in machine learning in the sense that you want you don't want to commit to a particular representation or a particular explanation for something you want to comply with Occam's principle and try and keep your explanations or your mechanisms as simple as possible so in not committing to a particular very specific um, brittle explanation you actually are going to have um, a very high uh, entropy explanation of what's going on that could accommodate this and could accommodate that. So mathematically, what that translates to is that maximizing the degeneracy is one part of maximizing model evidence, which automatically ensures that you don't overfit your data and if you don't overfit your data today, then your, your models, your robots, will generalize to the data that they acquire tomorrow. So I think that, or if they were damaged, or the situation changes, or there's a, a contextual change. So that you're, because you've maximized the entropy of your representations, or maximized, if you like, with the, the degeneracy, then you are creating artifacts or um, models of a world that will generalize, they will not be brittle, they will not overfit, and they will survive tomorrow or you're in, you're in, a, in a slightly different context. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a really important issue, but I'm, I'm interpreting your, your robustness really, you know, from a, um, a statistical perspective. You know, what does it mean to be robust? Well, it means having that latitude to mm -hmm. generalize. Uh, and that basically, you know, when you actually write down the objective functions that give you that generalization, um, you, you, you end up with basically James's maximum entropy principle, you know, which, is, which is part of, of, of the free energy principle. Yeah. And practically, it becomes very important, um, you know, if you're doing, if you're using neural networks or deep learning to amortize something in, in your robot, you know, if you don't take care of, of, of that maximum entropy principle, then you're going to run into all sorts of sharp minima, local minima, and you're going to have a, spend a long lot of time undoing a particular thing that you've learned that just will not generalize to the, you know, to, to the next context. Mm, that's very interesting. I'm just asking that case about the trade-off here. For example, you apply for the complexity or accuracy. Do you think we can combine both of them at the same time? We, have, we don't have to give for these trade-offs sometimes. Oh, yes. No, that, yeah, absolutely. That, that's yeah. So, um, it, yeah, because um, in fact they are combined. You know, that, that, and I didn't mean to imply there's a trade-off. You don't have to choose one or the other. Um, so the log marginal likelihood of any, say, sensory data from any you know sort of um, human or biological sensory epithelia or any sensors in your robot, 
so when I talk about the evidence, I just mean the probability of, of those data, those sensory data under the implicit model that say you or, or a robot or an artifact had of how those data were caused. So that's just one objective function. That's just one thing. There's no, there's no trade-off, but you can just spit it. You can just say it is equal to accuracy minus complexity. And you can start to interpret what self-evidencing or evidence maximization or maximizing the marginal likelihood means um, with you know, maximizing with respect to the structure of your neural network or your robotic brain. Um, it could be the parameters, any attribute of the underlying processing machine mm. that has to have some um, similarity to the, the structure of the world that's generating the data that it is trying to model. Any attribute can, uh, has to be um, optimized with respect to the marginal likelihood, um, um, which is the same as minimizing the, the other free energy. The key point here is that that, that, that evidence, the log of that evidence is just accuracy minus complexity. So um, you know you don't have to choose which one to you know mm -hmm. to, to focus on. You you really look at the complexity part of it as a a cost or a constraint on um, the, you know, the the imperative to provide an accurate explanation of, of you know of the data at hand. Um, and if you hold the accuracy constant, then you want to just simplify the you know the mm -hmm. model. Biologically, that means you have to actually just close your eyes and think about things until you can find a simple explanation, uh, mm -hmm. or you go to sleep and you remove all those redundant synaptic connections or weight connections in your brain. Um, on the other hand, if your complexity is fixed, um, uh, the degrees of freedom you have available to explain, provide an accurate account of those data, then you want to maximize the fit, the accuracy. Um, so the, the trade-off is there for free, as it were. Um, it's just that in some situations, people don't um, bake into their objective functions the complexity or the degeneracy in the right kind of way. Uh, if you forget about that, then, then you, will, you will start usually overfitting because you're just looking at the, at the accuracy, accuracy mm -hmm. part. Practically, the way that you, um, if you wanted to balance it to make the uh, your the generative model fit for purpose for a particular kind of world if that world is providing extremely precise reliable data then your generative model will know that and it'll emphasize the accuracy part of the uh, of the of the evidence automatically if on the other hand your data are coming from very noisy sensors or that's very unreliable data um, then the accuracy part um, starts to be suppressed in relation to the complexity. You start to rely more upon uh, your implicit priors in, in the model. So it may help just mathematically um, just to say that the complexity technically is the uh, relative entropy or the KL divergence between your priors and your posteriors. So literally, the complexity cost, the computational cost, mm -hmm. is how much I have to change my mind to provide a good explanation for, for, for this sensory sensory data or, or sensations. It's how much you move your 
posteriors away from your priors. And if you don't have to do that very much, that's a nice, simple explanation that complies with Occam's principle, uses less electricity by Landauer's principle. You know, that, that's the holy grail, provided that your priors are good enough to provide an accurate account of, of the data you, that you're, you're trying, to, trying to explain. So this, um, this take on degeneracy, i.e. complexity, i.e. efficiency, unpacks at many, many different levels. Some of them are, you know, are really quite, quite sort of practically important. So literally, um, if you've got a high complexity in the sense that you are um, moving your posterior away from your prior in, you know, in, in order to provide an accurate account of the data, that's going to cost more energy. I repeat via you know, Zielinski equality or Landauer's principle. And you'll be able to measure that in terms of the current drawn from your artifact. Or what we do is we measure the uh, cerebral metabolic rate of oxygen metabolism or the blood flow to different parts of the brain. So the, the whole basis of um, brain imaging is precisely this mechanism of belief updating information processing where we can see which parts of the brain are changing their mind by measuring the thermodynamic or the metabolic cost, which monotonically reflects the, the complexity cost or the, um, or, or the computational cost. So very closely related to uh, Jürgen Schmidhuber's notion of uh, um, simplicity and compressibility as the ultimate um, like objective functions. Mm -hmm. So you can even follow that through to universal computation if you wanted to. Again, this notion of simple, compressible representations using as fewer degrees of freedom or bits of information as possible. And of course, from a Bayesian perspective, that means that um, in order to, um, you would interpret that in terms of sort of minimal messages, in terms of message passing um, entailed by changing your mind in response to some new, a new bit, of bit of data. That's fascinating. Maybe I'll just a quick question here about the design of, for example, in AI or machine learning, the, the number of layers, for example, if you want to mimic the human brain, simulating brain, some people say add more layers, but that doesn't really help. I mean, computation will be very expensive. And right. In that case, uh, from your experience, when you have this kind of, you looked brain, if you have this abstraction, what could be the most important component or element you think it's just represented instead of going to all these layers or this, yeah design, what could be the maybe the efficient way or significant way that we can get abstraction? What's the part that you think we can replicate instead of going to the design process, we have more layers to have more computation power? Uh, that's a brilliant question. It actually follows on beautifully from, from um, you know, the, the question about degeneracy and structure and complexity. So, you know, this, this basic rule about getting the complexity right in relation to the quality of the data and the accuracy with which you need to explain those data um, um, also holds in terms of the structure. So if you think about the, you know, the network, let's say a, 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 a deep convolutional network in machine learning or just, um, you know, how many hidden layers you have in, in a sort of... Um, I'm thinking here of the work of uh, Giantani in, um, in robotics, you know, having, having sort of slow and fast neural networks, recurrent neural networks generate um, predicted movements. Um, then th the number of layers is a really important 
structural attribute of the generative model um, that, that is, um, determines at a sort of coarse grain level its complexity. So a simple model with a few degrees of freedom will have one or two layers. A very complex model may have lots more degrees of freedom and may have to say 12 layers. So if you then commit to the simple observation that you can trace right back to, I repeat, um, you know, cybernetics and the good regulator theorem, if you commit to the notion that the best structure, the best architecture is that um, that entails a generative model that has the greatest evidence, then you can just score the evidence with either two, three, four, five, six, up to 12 hidden levels or layers in your neural network. And there will be an inverted U behavior of the model evidence or a U-shaped uh, relationship with say uh, the evidence, um, the uh, variational free energy that is a proxy for that that will automatically tell you what structure is for this particular artifact in this kind of world. So notice that this is a function of the data. So the marginal likelihood is a likelihood of the data. So the, the, uh, the, the answer that you would get from this procedure is always going to be conditioned upon the kind of data that this robot or this artifact has to deal with. So simple worlds, thermostats will be very, very simple. They'll just need one there. Sort of humanoid, robots, soft robots. You know, dogs have to do what uh, deal with worlds that dogs deal with, and um, will have to have many, many more, uh, many more layers. So it very dep much depends upon the kind of data and the sensorium you expect this this artifact to um, um, to, to handle. Mathematically, this is a really important um, theme in Bayesian statistics, where it's known as structure learning. Um, yeah. or it's called Bayesian model um, uh, comparison and selection. So you get exactly the same mathematical problem um, when you have different models of scientific data, statistical models. Um, so you know, you've got to find the right, the right level of complexity. And therefore, what you do is you try to assess the evidence for a simple hypothesis and then a more complicated one and a more complicated one. And at some point, your evidence will keep on going up and then it will come back down again as you overdo it. And again, we get back into the realm of overfitting and the model won't generalize. So getting that, that sort of the right number of levels mm -hmm. as a architectural attribute of a deep network is you know, a, a beautiful example of, uh, you know, in principle, being able to use structure learning or Bayesian model comparison to actually get that right. So, you know, the hierarchical, um, if you like, um, architecture of brains and neural networks um, you, you're probably one of the most important structural attributes that determine the complexity and the degrees of freedom. But there are others, um, but I, I think that's probably the most, you know, the most important one. So mm -hmm. how, how many hierarchical levels do you think your brain has? Oh, that's... Uh, that's uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe a million or more. <laughs> I don't know what what's the right answer. Six. I think it's six. <laughs> okay, that's embarrassing. I didn't know. I'm just joking. No one knows. I, I, was, I was just teasing you. Okay, that's interesting. 